Welcome to Directly Correct, a PLX podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, the Renaissance man himself, Max Blumberg. Max, there he is. The big guy himself. Dude, I'm so honored to be your, <laughs> to be your second podcast. Well, I was until I saw the title of it now. <laughs> Emergency podcast. I'm that that does detract slightly from the great honor, you know, emergency. Yeah, yeah, we got you in, Max, because the other dude couldn't make it. It's great to have you here. It is great to have you here. And I think that, like, if you come on three more times, we'll have to give you, like, a jacket or a medal or something. Exactly. That picture of mine is not doing good things, is it? No, it's really not. <laughs> <laughs> I look like, a, okay, I look like something out of Star Wars or worse. You're like Homer Simpson backing into the bushes. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Shiny thing. Okay. Um... Well, Matt, Max, I'm glad you feel honored to be the first guest we've had on the podcast twice. And yeah. it is an honor. And we were actually really excited. I actually re-listened to your first episode. And the last thing that we said on that episode is we'd love to have you back on the podcast. So, We'll see if that holds true at the end of this episode <laughs> to bring you back for a third time. We do honor our word. Um, you, are, you are good people. Now, just give me Tom Wheeler. How do I change the background when I'm in the meeting? That means you've got to get to Zoom. Well, while you're figuring that out, Max, let me, let me introduce you real quick. So, so Max joined us for episode 12 of the podcast where we branded him as the renaissance man of people analytics because they feel like he's done everything under the sun. So go back and listen to that episode. If you haven't had the chance, it's, it's a lot of fun, but in terms of Max's background, he is Max Blumberg. He's the sole proprietor of Blumberg partnership. He's an affiliated research scientist with university of Southern California and the center for effective organizations. He's got a PhD in IO psychology and probably for sake of the conversation we're going to have today, He's actually IPO'd a tech company and led a company in the past, not just been, you know, a people analytics researcher. And he's had a very <laughs> crazy career all over the place with many accolades and prestigious positions. So thanks for joining us again, Max. <laughs> it's lovely to see both of you. Really. Absolutely. Well, we uh, we wanted to bring you back on. And, and I guess why we put the word emergency podcast in the title is, since we had you on last time, my oh my, how have things changed you know, with they? the economy, everything that's going on? And I saw that you had given a, a recent presentation at a conference that maybe we could dig into today. I don't, I don't know, Scott, anything on your mind before we get into that? Oh, boy, this would be a rough transition to that. But uh, yeah, clearly that there's got these Twitter layoffs going on and uh, Max, we're curious of your thoughts on those. Cool. Sounds good. I mean, you literally want to know that right now. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to have to work. We're going to work on these transitions. Clearly it's super <laughs> early right now. I probably look like, uh, you know, Michael Jackson at the end of the thriller video. <laughs> that's, yes. that's the way I feel right now. Okay. Yeah. So for those who are listening, just because of time differences from Max being in the UK and me being in the central time zone in the US and, and Scott being on the West Coast, it's actually like 7 a.m. Scott's time and the coffee shops haven't even opened up yet. So this could be an interesting recording today for sure. 
but looks plenty awake to me from where I'm. Yeah. <laughs> What's the required distance from the screen again, Scott? You, you know, on podcast number two, you gave us a good lesson on that. Oh, I, I think the boy that was a long time ago. I distinctly remember like reading the study while at the Munich airport. Uh, but it was, it was essentially that the closer you sit to the screen, the more intimate that feeling. And so, like people that are like twenty four inches away, that's way closer than you would normally be in any other conversation. So. Thanks, Mac. Yeah, I, I do consciously like try and back away from the screen. I don't even let my relationship partners come within that sort of distance to me. So, you know, I'm never going to do it. Totally, totally. That, that shot cut up completely. Yeah. Well, and, and while Scott's backing away, I'm actually getting closer just because <laughs> I keep getting told that my microphone's not loud enough. So I'm like talking to the microphone, Cole. Be very sensual, ASMR, you know, do what, do what the people want, give them what they want. Yeah, well, if, if if I could get further away while Cole's doing that, I would. I'm, I, you see, I, that's very interesting. You know that I used to have a sex and relationship show on London's uh, LBC radio, it's called London Broadcast Radio. No. I'm so glad we brought this up. Tell us more, Max, it was please. All about relationships and closeness and stuff. Was the, that was the link in the transition there. No, I love it. I've been meaning to talk to you about this. So, like, Max... And again, I mentioned he had a very varied career. You've actually been, you know, like, I, I, would you call it a talk show host? I, I don't know what the appropriate uh, term I is. I was actually the regular guest. So it would have been someone's show. And they said tonight. <laughs> as one, I remember one episode started by saying tonight on the show, we have the devil. Because what I'd done was created something called a dating eligibility value indicator level where you do like a little 10, 10 questions test. And the person that you fancy does the test as well. And then you can compare your scores and it predicts how well your relationship will work together. You were like the original match.com. That was the original match.com. I mean, it, that is what my PhD was on, was on, you know, what makes happy couple relationships. That was my, uh, and there was a big connection to, um, to, to people analytics in that, because if I, if I hadn't done that, I would never have discovered that you can't look at teams of people, whether it's a team of two people, as in a relationship, or um, a team of 10 people in an organization, you can't use linear regression when you are doing mm -hmm. that kind of work. You can't predict uh, engagement scores or use engagement scores or look at team performance, because those scores are not independent. Of each other and in relationships it's really easy to see why because you show me somebody you say how happy are you in your romantic relationship and they say yeah i'm not that happy and then what is the chances that when you go to their partner and you say how do you feel about it what's the chances that they're going to say the same thing and the chances are extremely high because if one person's unhappy so is the other person so those scores are not independent and one of the rules that you may recall from many years ago when you were doing this thing is that when you do regression, if the scores are correlated in any way, that means that the coefficients in the model will be inflated. And so you have to use other techniques like autocorrelation, auto definitely. So do opposites really attract or is it more about the congruency of, uh, I don't know, interest and behaviors? Great question. So, so really what it boils down to is communication between the couple, between the partners. So th that accounts for about 60, 70% of the variance. Is Go figure. How, well, exactly. And funnily enough, 
Um, but the role of personality is still super interesting, even though it only accounts for 10%. But, but, but the, the, the study was sponsored by a couple's relationship counseling organization. So can you imagine if the finding had been that personality is the biggest factor for determining relationship happiness? Because no amount of counseling is going to change that. But, but one of the fascinating findings, and here's one for you guys as psychologists, is that in, out of all the five personality traits, there's no question that neuroticism is the biggest one. So if you have a neurotic partner, it's really tough having a, a positive relationship. And then the next one is agreeableness, and then the other three are kind of marginal. But um, when you're looking at personality at, uh, at work, for work performance, so relationship performance, work performance, kind of personality only accounts for 10% of relationship performance, but a whole bunch more than that in uh, work. <laughs> so it's like when you close the door in the morning and say, bye-bye, darling, and you go to work, you know, personality counts for nothing, and you get to work and say, hello, team, and now your personality is critical. So that's, uh, never been able to understand that. Maybe well, like, like dating a girl with, like, borderline personality disorder is fun until it isn't, and then your life is absolutely ruined, right? Exactly. Sounds like you know from experience, Scott. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> hey, well, do you mind if I go on a, a quick tangent going back to one of the things that you said, Max, and I, I'm curious if you even have an opinion on this. You said that communication is one of the biggest variables in play for a relationship to be effective, and that's similar to team effectiveness. And then when, you know, I, uh, probably a decade ago now, um, Google published the big Project Oxygen um, using Amy Edmondson's research on psychological safety. and if I really boil down psychological safety to its core, it's like, can you communicate effectively even in a, you know, a diverse group of competing opinions, which seems very much like a relationship. So is it really just communication at work too? Is it like, is psychological safety the same I mean, thing in relationship? That's a good question. The, the answer, of course, is that, of course, um, is that it's mediated by now the question is which way is the mediation so mm -hmm. is fact of communication on what was your outcome variable there oh um i guess it was team effectiveness i can't so remember it's been a while since i've read it so it's quite interesting is the relationship of personality on team effectiveness mediated by communication or does communication have a big impact but is mediated by your personality and to my mind i'm guessing here but i think mm -hmm. that that would have something to say you you're a good communicator, but if your personality is highly neurotic, I think that's going to bring your communication down. It may be moderated rather than mediated. Boy, we're getting into the nerdery early here. But... <laughs> we got there right away. We didn't even have, you know, when you joined us last time, the nerdery didn't exist, Max. That's, that's how crazy it is. It's been a while. Yeah, but, you know, in this life, you have to adapt to the new very quickly. I guess you, you get you get the sticker for number not just number one guest but number one fan Mac. So I know you follow <laughs> us, and it, it's not a Monday that doesn't go by that I get an email from you at like you know three in the morning my time <laughs> with all the feedback on the podcast episode. So While appreciate the, the feedback. Trainer. While I'm yeah. on the cross, 
and now I've got a new pattern because I know you're going to want to dig into what happened to the uh, the provocation and all that. But but I have a new thing which I'm trying now. Not that it's successful yet, but that actually I do a live stream of consciousness on the post where you advertise the new podcast. So you know, as you say something about hey, well, what is productivity? And then I kind of that's where I comment, but not not that anybody responds to my comments on. That's like, <laughs> yeah, Scott. Did you see Max doing that? I, I on Craig's episode, and I was like, "What the hell is going on here?" I love that so much, Max. That's that's wonderful. I have to go check it out. No, no, I I treat it very much like in the door, out the door. So once it's off the door, off the out the door, gone. We don't we don't mess with it anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's one thing that is interesting. I just want to quickly circle back to Cole's idea about the oxygen study and stuff like that. And sure. this idea that your personality has a different impact on home domestic relationship versus work relationship. And I kind of wonder, is that because the outcome is mediated by a work goal? In other words, work effectiveness versus emotional effectiveness, if I can use that term at home. And the way mm -hmm. you behave at home, because you're emotionally attached personality has a different effect so what i'm getting at here is that what happens if we brought more emotion into the workplace now i know cole gets very afraid when i talk about emotion in the oh, workplace. shut up no mac one, no one's ever <laughs> cried on our podcast i'm gonna cry on the podcast. but but seriously so if we had scott's idea of actualization being an important outcome at work so you'd need to be a bit of an activist because in capitalism, it's kind of difficult to persuade anybody that there's anybody other than the shareholders uh, that you have to please. But if you did please people emotionally at work, then personality might start taking on more of a role like it does in your romantic relationship in the work. And there wouldn't be such a distinction between work and uh, home either. Quite possibly, but the, the outcome variables are also different. In the office, you're talking about like team harmony, and this sort of things, it's also like a production outcome measure. So like, how is production measured? Well, some of it's like conscientiousness because we know we do everything right and this sort of thing. And the home, it's more of didactic harmony, like nothing's going on. That's how you know that things are going okay. I think that's really interesting. So if we were to say that a romantic couple harmony why is that different? Let's say you have a team of two. In fact, this was, do you know, my, my PhD was initially going to be about the relationship between a chairperson and the CEO in an organization, because that's a, you know, that's a diet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Important diet. And, you know, people have said, hey, when are you going to compare the um, dynamics of, of, of a chairman CEO relationship to a couple relationship, which is an interesting question. But, but to you then, Scott, harmony in a Harmony between a couple, two partners, and harmony between chairman and CEO, are they really of a different quality? I, I think that that is definitely one dimension. The added dimension in the office place is productivity, or I guess at that level, it's probably shareholder value. You're delivering some sort of results. That, that's what I'm saying. That's my argument. That's why. It's different is because the outcome is you're delivering something. So you'll tolerate a lot more from people you don't like at work because you're all hopefully working towards a common vision. <laughs> Whereas at home, 
if you're not working towards a common vision, that relationship is you know, probably going to not do so well because the communication will die because conflict is defined in relationships as being where two, where two people in a relationship have got different goals, very different goals that can't be compromised. And as soon as you get to different goals, that is where we get conflict from in relationships. Now, at work, that's kind of easier to manage because hopefully we all have the same goal at, at work. So conflict should be less. And so that this, hopefully is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. You know? Well, exactly. <laughs> I bet your boss would say to you that, you know, yeah, I bet your boss would say that they hope that there's a lot less conflict at, at, at work or that there isn't conflict at work. And you can also subdivide conflict into like task conflict. We disagree on how we should per, uh, proceed and like what the ultimate goal is. And there's also relationship con conflict, which is Cole, I hate you. <laughs> Max, you, you, I don't. I like you though. <laughs> See, we're in conflict. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, I kind of define conflict as the stuff that makes your cortisol go up and your heart go, you know racing in a bad way so i mean you could have task disagreement and your heart could still do all of those things it's how you it's how you interpret it the <laughs> uh, anyway, the, 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 there's there's people that thrive on that too they they, they love getting those situations where they're yeah, in conflict yeah that's true yeah Until i'm, I'm seeming to find myself more and more recently i don't really know why i'm not trying to get there um but i, I do have a question max um there's something you brought up a minute ago about like, you know, businesses being all about, you know, shareholder value, but then there's also kind of like what you might call humanist concerns about the employees, how they're feeling and all that. And those two things somewhat being in conflict. I, I, Cause I, I follow your stuff. Obviously we've talked quite a bit. We've had you on the podcast. I think you're a brilliant mind. How do you personally, especially when you're consulting with organizations, how do you square those two notions? How do you know when to put on the red activist jacket that you were talking about earlier and when to focus solely on shareholder value from kind of a ruthless pragmatist perspective? I'm a consultant. I follow what my sponsor wants me. So if my sponsor is really shareholder driven, I follow what the sponsor says. It's not my job to change the culture unless that is the job I've been given. But normally the job I've been given is to change a process or to instill some workforce capability into the organization. Um, that's a real chicken answer on my part, isn't it? Yeah, but it is. It is. But, but, but the bottom line is we operate and, you know, we can pretend as much as we want to on this podcast and amongst our mates that, yeah, we really care about the employees and that engagement and employee experience is really important. And, you know, we even have a counseling stress line for our employees. You know, obviously we love, we all know the only reason the counseling stress line is there is because stressed employees are less productive and make less money for the shareholders. Um, there's no niceness to employees at the shareholder level. There just isn't room for it. If you introduce that formally in capitalism, capitalism would, down. It wouldn't be capitalism anymore. So, so I don't believe that successful companies, that part of their fabric is being nice to employees for the employee's sake. They are nice to employees. You sit down and you say, hey, Cole, how's your week going, man? How are the kids? 
You know, that, 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 that. you know, you may do that from a human spot, but there's every chance that some managers are asking you that because they know if they don't, Cole might leave or Cole might not work as well, etc. So I don't believe that organizations are geared towards employees being happy for their own sake so much as they're geared towards employees being happy for the shareholders. Yeah, I have similar thoughts around uh, corporate social responsibility initiatives where it's like, hey, it's great that you want to do things for the environment, this sort of thing. But in the end, it really feels like a marketing play to promote the company and this sort of thing. And there's there's two good examples of that. And it's, it's, there's a way to do it well, and there's a way to do it poorly. So like in Houston, there's Mattress Mac. He uh, let everyone in. He has like just a million, you know, mattress stores, this sort of thing. During uh, the hurricanes, he lets people in. They can sleep on the mattresses. Everyone loves him. They go buy mattresses from him. BP had an oil spill. They, yeah, on the Gulf of Mexico, they went out and cleaned it up. And then they cost them like $10 million. Then they spent like $50 million advertising <laughs> how much good they did cleaning up ducks and this sort of thing. So that there's, yeah. in the end, it benefits the bottom line. Did you see that South Park? I still Park think episode? about that South Park episode where he's like, Sorry, we're so sorry. 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 <laughs> Lying in front of the fire. That was yeah. 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 No, I agree, hundred percent. You know, and well, that's isn't that what they call greenwashing, Scott? I mean, you know. greenwashing. I've never heard this term before. Oh, greenwashing is where you do something. You know, you know, you do something that you actually have to do. Maybe like pay green taxes, and then <laughs> yes. you a huge advertising campaign out of it afterwards and say, hey, you know, this is what we're doing for the planet. Well, no, you can't do that for the planet. Because if you didn't do that, your directors would go to jail, you know. So, you know, don't, don't, it's like the stress line, you know. You you didn't put in the counseling stress line because you love your employees and give them extra hours off. You know that if you don't give them those extra hours off and flexible working, that they're going to join your competitor, you know. So, you know. Some people, it's a little bit like a Turing test is that you can't actually tell the reason at the end. And maybe we need a Turing test for work. Is the reason that the company is doing this intervention for the benefit of the employee or for the benefit of the shareholder? And you'd need a really clever Turing test to tell you what's really in the mind of the executive. Well, I think, I think this segues nicely into like the uh, Twitter layoffs where... Elon Musk took over a company. Now his money's on the line. He has to turn a profit, show some value from it. And there's a lot of employees that uh, ostensibly were not doing a whole lot. He let go like 75% of the company and Twitter's doing pretty freaking well now. At least the service hasn't been interrupted or anything like that. So, I mean, it's great to like create an environment where everyone can like self-actualize and this sort of thing. But at the end of the day, it's a company. They, They make money. That's the whole purpose. Yes. So, so you would need to change the whole fabric of the company, as you suggested, Scott. You're the one who brought up the idea of actualization. But what you've just said is 100% true. The nice thing about Elon Musk, you know, South Africans can be fairly straightforward people, they say. I don't but But um, he is pure. There's no messing around with Elon. So when Elon says something, you know generally that he means it. It could be because he's a little bit spectrumy in some ways. And so he he can't he can't hide it. Like like more like we're sorry. Um <laughs> he, can't, he 
He can't hide that. And so if you want to look at capitalism at its absolute best, Elon shows you what it is. And maybe Elon, do you guys, is, is Mad Magazine still going in, in the US? Do you know what that is even, Mad Magazine? I know what it is. I've never looked at it, though. They used to have a show called Mad TV as well. It was based okay. on the same thing. So there was a thing called, uh, a great series called The Shadow Knows. Um, it used to come up every, every now and again. And for example, there'd be somebody on a date and the guy would be sitting there saying, oh, that's so interesting. Gosh, you do flower arrangement on the weekends. Oh, gosh, that's so interesting. But, but his shadow, you know, was letching. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so, you know, the shadow knows what, what, what's, really, what's really going on in the person's head. And with Elon Musk, you don't need the shadow to tell you what's going on. Elon just, you know, he's at the date he would be latching um, from, from day one. And so I, I'm with you, Scott. Yeah, I mean, this could be a really short discussion, couldn't it? Because in a sense, we're all agreeing that organizations are primarily about shareholder value. And Scott says that the organization would collapse if it wasn't like that. We all kind of agree that you have to make a semblance towards people, if not to pretend that you like what they're doing, um, in order to go, in in order to keep employees happy. But there was those. What was I've forgotten the name? What was the name of the experiments with the lights in the manufacturing? Hawthorne uh, effect. And, and and you know, I read somewhere in the Atlantic. You guys ever read the Atlantic? That's fairly good. Sometimes. Detailed arguments. There's a really good article that said, you know, we discussed the, the role of HR in organization and said that the Hawthorne experiments, as you know, they changed the lighting, et cetera, to see what would happen uh, to productivity. And one of the key outcomes was that um, it's not the lighting that made much difference. It was the fact that people were being watched that improved productivity. And so that sort of finding, they say, was the birth of HR. And they say that the role of HR in an organization is to improve employee productivity without improving employee reward or improving employee work So how can we squeeze more out of employees without paying them more or improving their condition? That is the, and the Hawthorne experiment was all about that. What, how can we change the lighting so that they'll manufacture more so we don't have to pay them. I mean, one of the interventions could have been, hey, let's pay them more. Uh, so we'll have different con little, con we'll have a control group and different experimental groups, each paid at a slightly different level. And we'll see at what pay level does the work improve. But that's not what they do in business psychology, is that? Business psychology is all about changing the conditions. Employee experience, yeah, that we can change. That's cheap. Uh, how about employee engagement? Yeah, we can cheap or innovation, or, or let's put the person's photograph on the front of the company magazine. That'll make them happy. But one of the options is not let's pay them more. Sorry, Paul. Well, I want to come back to the Twitter thing here in a second. But before we get into that, I want to go on a little bit of a tangent. Are you saying that, like, just bringing kind of the Hawthorne studies full circle into the present, is that the reason why we're seeing such an uptick in employee surveillance technologies? is oh. to try to increase the productivity of folks without paying them more, without increasing their, their work conditions? By definition. I mean, I mean, Dilbert captured it. I've never been able to find this, 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 uh, that, that particular strip, but it was the day that everybody started wearing, you know, watches and stuff to monitor. 
and um, Egbert or some uh, uh, Dilbert, one of the engineers says, you know, these watches, what are they doing with them? And, and the evil HR director, Catbert, comes in and says, they're for your benefit. It's so that we can see when you're stressed to ensure that you are working, that you are that your pulse, your heart rate is really low when you need breaks, et cetera. That's why, you know, oh, well, that's okay then. And then Catbird kind of goes to the 18th floor into his dark office um, and gets onto, you know, the microphone and says, uh, cubicle number 732, heart rate isn't high enough. Give him more work. That's, I think that, you know, that's, that's probably part of the reason why people like the working from home so much because they're not under the scrutiny of other people or their bosses all the time. There's tons of people that go to work and they just kind of hate their jobs. It's probably because of this monitoring that they endure. And and when I raised this, Barry, Barry uh, will tell you the story sometime if you want to hear it from people analytics who are Barry Swell. But I was on, a, on, on, on the stage in a conference with somebody from um, a watch company uh, that shall remain nameless. And, you know, they were saying, yeah, yeah, we can monitor how many hours you sleep at night and it will be really good for you. And I'm saying, in what possible world can that, you know, would you need to know that? The guy said, well, if you're an airline pilot, okay, how many airline pilots are there sitting in the audience today? You know, so for most those, yeah. it's not really the company's job to know how many hours and, and for your performance rating, potentially, to be measured on that. Did you know? that most of the audience were Gen uh, Y um, and maybe a couple of Gen Zs and that they all disagreed with me. And I thought, what? I would have thought that this generation would be on my side, didn't want to be surveilled and monitors exactly as you're suggesting. But because I grew up in an age where we weren't surveilled and now we are, I can see the difference between living in a time where you weren't surveilled and I can compare it to a time where we are. And I guess you guys are just about of an age as well, where you can also remember a time where you weren't surveilled. People who've grown up in the surveilled age, it's all they know. Like lobster yeah. in the wall. Totally used well, to you it. grew up, you grew up, Max, and this is meant to be a double entendre before 1984, you know? So <laughs> good for you. Well, there's also serious consequences sure. like back in the day to, you know, government overreach and this sort of thing into uh, people's lives. And like, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the Gen Z and millennials grew up with technology and haven't really seen any negative consequences from it that they're aware of, that they're aware of. Like at most it's better advertising towards them. One, one manager at a company that gave everybody Fitbits, um, I had a chat, I, I know them very well. Uh, people analytics manager and I said you know how do you feel about grabbing all this data about your employees he said Max I can assure you that the culture of our company is such that we would only use it for their good funnily enough Cole you look up to the heaven like that with this particular person I actually believe them because I know them personally and they are very you know ethical etc I said you are X but what about the person who's going to take over from you and has all of this data? So it's no good basing your ethics and integrity on the manager today. It's kind of what's the manager in the future going to do with that data? That's the scare. And I think that is where Gen Z, I mean, this is, I'm not the first person to say this. You know, I'm not sure if they fully appreciate the implications of having all their data out there now 
when it's going to come to their future performance reviews. If indeed we're still having performance reviews, you know, if everything hasn't gone outsourced, automated, um, gig, etc. You had a you had a uh, uptick in your heartbeat when the CEO was on the stage at the All Hands. Uh, therefore, you're high performing. Yeah. I mean, did you know, I, I saw a really cool study um, in the city in London, which is the equivalent of, of Wall Street, where they had an experimental group with um, bond traders, so guys dealing in kind of billion, billion dollar bonds, and they were measuring their blood and their brainwaves and stuff while they were trading uh, in order to, and what would happen is if they didn't like what they saw on the brainwave and in the blood, you are pulled off the floor when oh your brain gets to, yep, literally pulled off the floor when your brain gets to a point that might impact your trading negatively. Now you might say that's a good thing for my commission, etc. But we're now at that point where we are literally looking at what your brain is doing at work. And I mean, the silly example is one of the a newspaper in the UK uh, measured how many times everybody went to the uh, bathroom uh, during the day at work. That was stopped, thank God. Can I, can I go back to something, Max? I think this is a really important point about the Fitbit example, but I think it could apply to any of the examples you just gave about like drawing blood or going to the restroom as well, which is if that data is being collected, regardless of the, you know, let's call it the virtue of the person who's collecting it at the time. And I think this is kind of the transition I want to make back to the Twitter example is like, well, what if you have the ruthless pragmatist leader that comes into an organization and says, people analytics, I demand more productivity from your team and I need it from your Fitbit or from drawing the blood or from going to the restrooms or you're no longer going to be employed at this organization. What happens then? Like what, what should happen? What does happen? And I think because I really think this is a really important topic at this moment in time. It's huge. Firstly, I think it's already happening, what you've just described. I think it literally, people look at performance and are starting to get more and more objective measures of performance of people. And although they wouldn't admit it, they, I think they are using it to decide whether. So, so if I do a, a study for an organization, say I want to create, you know, pro, I love profiling. So when I'm profiling the ideal employee for a particular role in terms of various psychometric and things like that. One of the things that I do is I guarantee all of the employees in the organization that I will be the only person who sees their individual data. And I can stick to that because I'm an external. Um, and I can just say, you know, I've promised everybody only I'm going to do it. But the second that, um, that they do it internally, employees don't have that level of protection. I have to in any ways because I'm a registered psychologist. So, you know, that's... I would yeah. get into big trouble if I broke that promise. Whereas an internal employee, uh, they, since there isn't a law against, that's kind of the restriction, which is why it comes back to um, to the red jacket, is the activist jacket. You're not going to change that until the whole context, the law changes around that. I have some faith in Gen Z, funnily enough, that they will change that. So when they start becoming the next generation of CEOs, maybe it's more of a hope that I have. Because um, I'd really like to see Scott's actualization idea uh, be yeah, one yeah. of the outcomes that we look for. You ask the average psychologist, do they know how to measure actualization? The answer is probably going to be no. 
Well, the thing, the thing I think about is like, I just wish this discussion was happening in more forums than on this podcast. Right. I just don't see it. It's like such a, a relevant issue to what's going on in the world and it's not being discussed or if it is being discussed, it's completely behind closed doors. And I, I feel, believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant, but I, we've kind of gotten heavy here for a second. I think we should lighten it up a little bit. Max, yeah. I think we've got some rapid fire questions for you. Do you want to take a, take a shot at those? Yeah. Well, what I love about Max is like, we came in with a modest agenda and he totally blew it. This, we went totally <laughs> off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> can I just can I just respond to Cole's last comment about you? Know, yeah, kind of, please do. Got kind, of he- got kind of heavy there, uh, and you'd love to have you know sunshine and sunlight on the thing to make it open. I'd love to see you try doing that with a bunch of employees. Who would be stupid enough to open their mouth as an employ as a senior employee? Sorry, if you're unionized, different story, you know, because you're going to say what you think anyway. No, nobody who's not in a union and in a reasonably good position, who's earning a nice salary, who's got kids to put through college, etc. Who's going to open their mouth and say, yeah, we should change the social fabric and the law and the context of the thing. <laughs> okay, that's the end of the darkness. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Let's head to the light. Let's head to the light. Okay, so uh, Max is a Brit, so we got a very British version. I'm South of... African born, by the way. Yeah, oh, guys. well, shit, man. I messed <laughs> this all up then. <laughs> Have you ever seen the uh, documentary Waiting for Sugar Man? Searching for Su- Sugar Man. Well, funny you should say that because he's more famous in South Africa than he is anywhere else in the world. So. Yes, he's like the Elvis there, but he's from Detroit. Is he Fan- the Elvis? Fan- is that how you Sugar Man. Very good. All the colors to my dream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if I can substitute South African stuff in here, but Okay, uh, first one, British Museum or British Pub? Uh, what's, uh, what's the second one? British Pub. Oh, Museum. Museum every day. No question. Okay, okay a dapper suit or a track suit? Track suit. Track suit. What about you, Cole? You want to dress up or sweatsuit? Sweatpants? I'm trying to think. I mean, I... If I based it on probability, it's probably the dapper suit, just because I don't think I even own a tracksuit. <laughs> okay, Max. Uh, when you're at line at Tesco, do you talk to people online or just leave them alone? I did when I, st- when I came here. I've now learned to shut up. S- same in Seattle. Boy. Coming from I can Texas. Beat that, though. I can beat that kind of when, when my mom from South Africa came to visit me for the first time. So when you get off the boat and you're very fresh in a new country, you kind of don't know anything about the culture. And so mom, bless her, 70, 75, whatever it was, um, gets on a tube, the city tube, the same kind of Wall Street type that we were talking about earlier. And everybody's in their sort of suits because like 1997. And they're very unhappy looking at their papers, etc. And mom's just looking, speaking to everyone, which is rule number one. <laughs> Isn't this exciting being on a tube underground to <laughs> these people who are like being carried to the death camp daily? <laughs> you know, and she's like, "Isn't this exciting?" One <laughs> person had mercy on her and smiled and said, "Yes, it's lovely." I I, I relate to your mother immensely. Be, coming yeah. from Texas to Seattle, people here don't talk. Seattle, you want to talk and be nice to, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. Uh, do you trust Doctor Who? 
Um, I can't stand Doctor Who. Really? Really? Yeah. Uh, I can't. I don't know. I think I can't. I was going to say, yeah, you had to be born here, but then you weren't. Uh, and you love Doctor Who. So why do you love it, Scott? I, I love the uh, 2005 to current version, but the, uh, what, 70s version? Uh, well, I guess probably 60s. It, it's a little low budget and hard to follow, honestly. But uh, you just need a phone box kind of thing. Uh, Cole, do you even know who Doctor Who is? I was going to say, Cole's got that, <laughs> that look on his face. You guys, you're always talking about stuff. Like, actually, I do know who Doctor Who is. I've just never watched it. Okay. You know, isn't it just just so make sure I'm I'm sure it's the character, the main character changes every season, right? That's the uh, only thing I know about the show. He 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 morphs definitely whenever the characters kind of run its course. Okay. If I were to say that Cole thought that Doctor Who was Pete Townsend, would anybody find that understand? (laughs) That (laughs) That big big 70s hair. That's 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 the old, yeah. Okay, like uh, on the uh, musical tip, uh, the ultimate British question: Paul McCartney or John Lennon? Oh, this came up in one of your very early podcasts, The Beatles. Um, that's a tough question. Oh God, that you really making me choose <laughs> between chocolate or or kind of what I like. So on, on the on the on the Paul side, you have like "Let It Be" and uh, yeah, no, I, I can play most of their music even. Really? Yeah, I have a recording studio up there. Max mm. is also an old musician as well, which we have he's not a, gotten onto in the podcast either. I did not know that. He's a musician rather than an old musician, but yes, I let that one slide. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was you referencing your your black musician or old. You are. Uh, I was music. referencing your short bout of fame in as being a musician, Max, not your age. I understand. I, you know, if I have to choose, I would say John because he was kind of deeper and more mysterious. Ooh. And I like the mysterious. Paul's great, but, you know, kind of surface, uh, romantic. Uh, I enjoyed his work in Wings just for, you know, I still play Wings very loudly, 1985 all that stuff but yeah I'd, you know i'd have to say john lennon and i think john wrote more complicated music more complex music and he, I, I he did that. he did and his, his life was obviously cut short and we don't know what would have happened yeah that's later true. on but uh you want to do some nerdery let's do mr. some nerdery john ono yeah <laughs> mr john ono oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see Check this out. Okay, so this goes along with that Tesco question. So a survey went out, 50,000 responses to uh, a question of how many people do you talk to and how does it relate to personal life satisfaction? And the finding was the more people you talk to... The more satisfied you are with life? Yeah, the the more people you talk to, the happier you are in life. And it's even beyond the number of close connections that you have. So, like, even just talking to people in this line at the grocery store has a great impact on your overall life satisfaction. I think it's true because I think it's built into our genetics. Human genes are social genes. We're born into relationships, we live in relationships, and we die in relationships. And mm-hmm. people who don't are going 
against what the genes tell them to do, uh, and therefore they are less in tune with the gene, and therefore. Well, just just to extend that point, Mac, if if we weren't social creatures, what you would find in like the rainforest and in like the undiscovered parts of you know the world is a lot of hermits. People yeah. living by themselves and thriving instead of communities, which is what you do find. And so yeah. it's completely invalidatable to say you know, we are social creatures. One of the things I actually really like about what you shared, Scott, is it's not just that you have uh, you know, more connections versus less connections. It was the variety of types of connections. Like you might even call it the diversity of connections that really led the most to like that satisfaction, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, well, but, we, we, we see this in a variety of our uh, network findings as well, specifically that people that are clustered onto teams and don't have any other outlet are unhappy and they leave organizations. And I think this might be part of what's going on with uh, the great resignation. We all went into this like pandemic sequestering sort of mind frame and we lost those connections to outside folks that you didn't see in the uh, office anymore. But here's the thing. Our brains were evolved on the Pleistocene. Yes. And they would have been evolved, they are evolved, to a certain critical size of group, like, you know, span of management sort of thing. Now, because of being online, this whole, the numbers that we have to deal with socially, etc., our brain is not geared to those. I mean, our brain is not geared to a whole bunch of stuff like so we are geared to seek out information from around us for survival purposes and for mating purposes, etc. But what happens to a brain that's designed for that much information to go onto Instagram and Facebook and whatever and be faced with that much information? What happens to the brain? Well, we do know that the right amount of information generates some dopamine, which is what you've just described. You speak to people in the supermarket, get a little dopamine rush. What happens if you take that dopamine and push it off the scale with social media? What, at what point does it become dysfunctional? And how many million years of evolution is it going to take for the brain to catch up? So my advice generally, and I've, I've written quite a bit about this and done quite a lot of TV work on this, is that kids, especially kids, should be restricted in the amount of stimuli that they get from social media to try and keep it in line with what the brain is. The once they're not kids anymore, it's up to them. You can say, you know, I'm just, and this is not a control freak thing for your kids. This is just saying, I am going to try and keep your stimulus, your stimulus levels to what I think the brain was designed to do. And that's it. And one interesting thing that I saw is that, did you know that kids from very uh, wealthy families uh, that go to kind of the private schools, et cetera, they are very restricted in the amount of social media that they're allowed to consume. So they have a specific, tend to have at Eton boarding school in the UK, that there's only a certain number of hours of social media that you're allowed to do. Whereas kids who are not from those wealthy, successful, big backgrounds, they have unlimited. And what that does is it creates a set of haves and have-nots. And these are the consumers for these people here, because they are not reactive. They are proactive producers. This group, because their brains are so dopamine, tend to be consumers. So I think that's contributing to the world we're seeing. Sorry, Scott. 
No, no. I think that that is a uh, really interesting point. There might be like a third variable there. So like you, you see these studies of like the more books that are in the house, the better the child is uh, when they actually finally develop. And this may speak to just ability and time to parent. So if you're, you know, lower income, lower earning, you don't have necessarily the same amount of time and effort to yeah. monitor social media. Uh, and I, I don't remember what the answer was, but out of when you have this huge group of people, do you still, are kids today, because I don't keep up with this, not my field anymore, but, but do kids today still maintain an inner circle of intimates, like, you know, 10, I mean, I had four or five, you know, one bestie, four or five inner circle, 10 outer, and then the world. But is that still a, um, a meme with up and coming generations? Is it a thing? I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. It is an interesting question. That would really change the fundamental fabric <laughs> of society if it doesn't exist anymore. But I, I do not know the answer to that. I, also I, like hope, someone, I hope someone's researching it. <laughs> just like as a tangent of this, like I wonder about uh, the role of like video conferencing too. Uh, in, in the sense that like some people are better at it than others. And that's going to fundamentally change the way we rate performance and how we work together. And like over time, like, I mean, throughout the day, a single day, the more meetings that are get stacked up, man, get worn out. But there's got to be people out there just like wildly energized by it. And they're, they're going to thrive. Well, that's what I was thinking about the research article. It seems like the, a moderator to what they found could be is, are these interactions via technology or are they in person? Right. Because I interact with a lot of people, yeah. uh, like a, a vast variety of people, but it's all virtually. And the only people I really see are my family. And so I wonder if that has an impact on my life satisfaction. I, I imagine it wouldn't matter because like, it's all about exploration and changing, or probably sharing ideas with one another. And to Max's point, the more fluent families, they do engage in a lot more exploration. They, they visit more diverse places. They have a lot more access to uh, weak ties, I mean, if you will. That's really interesting. I mean, there is research that shows that happiness levels of kids is going down. And I don't think many people dispute that. That you know, The question is why? You know, are we using different measures maybe? But one of the theories I've had, and I've looked for research on this, uh, and I haven't found it to Cole's point about you know, having so many meetings and conferences. Um, if you've got two salespeople trying to sell something, um, I think instinctively, a lot of us would probably feel that the one in person is likely to make the sale. And I still think that um, pheromones have got a role to play in this. Oh, pheromones. please, let's not get into this. Okay. Max was saying the creepiest thing to me the other day about like sending people people's sweaters so you could smell them before you meet with them. I was like, Jesus, Max. Well, there's there something to that. There's something to that. No, no, they got it. I mean, they did the research about attractiveness and smell. So they had people anonymized and you had to send your sweat in and then somebody, a potential partner smelt it and then they decided whether they liked you and then they looked at your photo and then they looked at all the interactions to see, you know, which is more important, the pheromones or the looks uh, of the person that you're doing. But I mean, we, again, I, I'm, I am an evolutionary psychologist. Whenever I'm in doubt in psychology, uh, you know, my basic thing is if I want people to say you're a psychologist, what am I going to do next? And I say, you know, I always just say, what would a dog do next in that situation? Because we are dogs, you know, with a thin veneer of, of social. 
And, and we were, we know that pheromones are important and they exist. If pheromones were important a million years ago for attracting people, there's no way that they're not critical uh, totally, a mere totally. million years in evolution. So there must be something that you're not getting from all of this virtual in terms of pheromones. And that could well explain why people are unhappy. And maybe we need pheromones to be happy. And, and to, to your point about uh, the social media, like it, we, we grew up or, you know, we, we evolved on the savannas and the small social clusters that traded when they needed to. And now we have a uh, little box in our hands that can give us access to anybody in the world at any time. It's got to fundamentally change us. We weren't involved but, to, if you speak to a like this. But if you speak to a 22-year-old, we were on a, a meeting in one of the uh, groups that we hold. And I remember somebody from Pepsi, uh, a 22-year-old person from Pepsi. And all the oldies are kind of saying, yeah, you need the pheromones and the face device. Not like the old days. The old days being pre-COVID. Um, where, where you actually saw people. And she was kind of bewildered by what we were talking about. She said, I don't know what you mean. I've just joined Pepsi. Um, I've met people from all around the world on Zoom. In fact, they're more inclusive in Zoom meetings than they are in person meetings. Because if there's a picture on the screen of somebody who hasn't spoken for a while, the leader will say, what do you think, X, etc." And so she didn't get it at all that in-person meetings are better. So this is a great controlled experiment in evolutionary psychology that we're living through. Um, and I believe that we will evolve into a new, this will influence our evolution of the human state, without a doubt. Not a bad thing. Well, I think this is actually a good uh, point to bring up. One of the things we wanted to talk to you about, Max, was this week, Mark Benioff from Salesforce was talking about this exact topic of new employees who've never met their coworkers. And um, because Salesforce, you know, pretty famously made one of the big proclamations that they would never have to come back to the office um, yeah. and that they were going to be, you know, so enlightened as an employer for doing so. <laughs> and now right. Mark Benioff is coming out and saying new joiners to the company are systematically facing lower productivity uh, than people that have been with the organization before. And he, he attributes this to folks not building tribal knowledge because they're not working with others in the office and perhaps smelling their pheromones. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> laugh if you will, but I tell you, there's, you know, there's got to, you know, may not be the pheromones, but there's some, what, what is it that you get from being in the presence of people that you don't, that you don't get with a camera? That's, that's the, you know, we started this conversation with 15 centimeters and we have kind of circled back to the same topic. What is it that in-person gives you, you know, if not, if not smelling the other person and chemicals that we don't fully understand, I don't believe biology understands them. And I think any biologist would agree with that. But what are you getting face to face that you're not getting with the camera? I, I, this is something that Michael Arena was on super early and super worried about. And uh, I think we're going to see this in other organizations as well, that what you get in the organization is this sort of constrained environment. You get kind of like a tribal mentality that kind of shows you uh, how to operate the appropriate behaviors, uh, not to mention just like being next to somebody is so much easier to uh, upload and download knowledge than, okay, I want to talk to Cole. I got to like, find some time on his calendar and it's got to be 30 minutes and all sorts of stuff as opposed to just like walking over to his desk and asking. So, so 
that tells us that's a great descriptive statistic that you've provided there. It doesn't say why you can't get that on camera. What is it about being in person? If I wanted a 30 minutes with you, you know, I can just pick up a phone or, 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 or do something and say, Scott, I need 30 minutes or get onto your calendar and book 30 minutes with you. There's something about that a camera can't do that being in physical proximity to you can do. We don't know yet whether, a, you know, a virtual you, a hologram uh, of Scott will provide the same effect. Uh, so if you were a hologram here, would it be, is that the same as a camera or is a hologram? <laughs> yes. Well, I think, I, I think you might be onto something, Max, because I feel like the difference is free range of motion. And a hologram would have free range of motion, whereas the camera and how we treat things now does not have free range of motion. But what were you going to add, Scott? I was going to add, it's not necessarily about like the video conferencing or, you know, perhaps, perhaps Pheromos plays some sort of role. I don't know. But it's really about the constrainment. So like if you're in the office, you're in the office. You not only see your teammates, you see other people working, you see people in the other group working, you get to meet them, this sort of thing. But when you're at home, as soon as you log off, you're talking to somebody else outside your organization. You're not getting the full download of behaviors. And we've yeah. seen in other studies that it takes, uh, what, 15 repetitions with a single person to develop the same level of trust that you get through one interaction in person. Pipeline or the data download just is not there in a remote environment. So that is the, that is the, the hind hypothesis of physical proximity as a reinforcer of organizational culture. There's, there's also like, just like, as like a tangent, I, 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 online, I see a lot of people like almost celebrate laziness too, uh, in, in the sense of like, people are getting these sort of like mechanical or even just uh, programmatic mouse jigglers. So like that they don't appear like they're offline or whatever. And like, Which I goes get back it. to the point about employee surveillance from earlier too. It, employee surveillance is sort of thing. But if you're doing that, that's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. And people yeah. that I think people like to work from home because, you know, they can sit in their bed or whatever, but, there might be an aspect of like, I don't have to work when I'm at home as well, which is why yeah. it's so liked. So, so not wearing a tracksuit at work presumably contributes to the whole culture reinforcement hypothesis of yours. So you're saying like wear, wearing, wearing a suit, a uniform? I mean, that, that's, that's part of coming to the office. Uh, well, I think it's more about not. I mean, who knows what anybody is wearing below the waist when they're doing video calls? Totally, totally. Whereas at the office, you do kind of know. So presumably that contributes to something, having to dress decently for the office, whereas you don't have to dress decently at home. I mean, like, not to turn this into like a, a video conferencing sort of conversation, but like in, in office, you get all of those uh, uh, physical and visual cues of people's body language, you know, how they operate when they're in the break room versus like on camera. Um, I feel I'm kind of seeing your body language and Cole's body language. You think so? Like, maybe I'm not. Okay, maybe I'm not. Can you see me giving you the middle finger with my right hand? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, this podcast is really devolving quickly. 
<laughs> I no, kid. I, 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 think... I love I love Max. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I don't no, know if this is an ad to the conversation, but one of the things I always think about is this concept of like a few bad apples. Like there are, you know, I, I imagine the majority of people who are working remotely are working just as studiously as they would in the office. But then there's a few bad apples who ruin it for everybody, just like in, in many contexts, there's a few bad apples. And so I just wonder, there's probably like a Pareto principle thing at play here where like a, a small number of people are accounting for the vast majority of bad behaviors or something like this. I don't even know. I, I mean, I work infinitely better from home uh, because I don't like, I need to concentrate. And so I'll, from home, I'll work eight hours without even getting up on right, something. Right. I could not do that at the office. But if my job required me to interact with people, then I wouldn't be so hot doing it. You know, my work doesn't usually. In fact, bosses always say, Max, we'll pay you more if you don't interact. <laughs> I, I will say, you, you see, this is like an entire empty floor right now because it's early in the morning. But it's, it's like the size of a football field. There's a million desks, whatever. And uh, last week, I'm sitting here and someone came and said, you know, to my right, like, okay, that's kind of weird. And then someone came and said, what, over right, there, what, what, sorry, right next to you. Well, like it, there's like dividers here. And they said like in the next little section over, then like someone came and said over there. And then someone came and said over there. And then someone came and said like right behind me. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, is like, is like a team Then they've taken over the entire floor. And so like, I got up and I Humans looked. Humans are and, social like, creatures, Scott. I guess so, because I looked and, and there's restaurants as well. You know, there's one table here. There's an empty restaurant and then another couple will come in and they have to sit at the table next. Why? Exactly. Exactly. Why and I was like, that? I'm trying to be alone here. What the hell, man? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be socially alone. <laughs> They're trying to be with other people. <laughs> that's why they came into the office probably exactly but the, the entire floor was empty except for this and, one and, section and, like and why are you sitting next to me and they're clustered is what you're saying yes yes well max i got a question for you do you think scott in his explanation a second ago where he was raising his voice to explain why this is weird did he sound more persuasive perhaps when he raised his voice yeah <laughs> It was unusual. I mean, Scott does sometimes. But, All right, uh, this is turning into a terrible transition. Okay. Um, okay. One of the things that we wanted to talk to you about today is we, we found an article that talked about um, people raising their voice in attempt to be more persuasive. And so, yeah. And, and so it says our natural inclination is to, when we're trying to speak more persuasively, is to talk louder and overall with more variation and volume in your voice. Uh, this is a, a, an article called How to How the Voice Persuade. And I, I thought this was so funny because it reminds me of my family growing up where everybody was always talking a little bit louder than the last person to try to convince them of some point <laughs> that was going on at the house. And so it was like, at, at, at some point, everybody's just yelling at each other, trying to convince each other that you know they're right about some particular topic so i th i found this research to be hilarious do, do you find this yeah. in yourself cole like do you, do you oh, think yes. that you yeah very much so it's cultural as well though because if you're in the mediterranean you've just been there scott you know what i'm talking yes. about yes 
you know, and Latinos that is, you know, shouting and mannerisms. And that is how you communicate when you want to make a point. You know, it's only in the, the very tame West, this part of the West, that we kind of, you know, it's the British Reserve, you know, that we expect this logical, quiet, make your point like that. But that, I presume we weren't evolved to be like that. That's a super solid point, Max, because like when you go to like uh, Italy or somewhere like that, like, like, holy shit, these people are about to fight because like they're like up in each other's face, like, duh, 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 duh. and you're like, oh, man. And like they're saying like, oh, no, we're just talking. We're just having fun. Yeah. Just and, and we admire passion like that generally. It, you know, I think yes. it's extroversion, you know, it's a, it's a characteristic that that we admire in others, even if we don't exhibit it ourselves. I I'm surprised that Cole sees himself as getting louder. I see Cole as like a submission fighter. Like he, he'll go the distance with you. He'll uh he'll outlast you. Is that what? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just I'm just ripping on you. Yeah, just ask my wife or ask my family. Uh, they'll tell you a different story. What they'll tell you that you're quiet and demure. No, they'll tell you that. <laughs> I raise my voice to try to get more persuasive, and it doesn't work. Well, you and I have had many discussions over the months. I cannot remember you raising your voice with me. That's probably a huge insult, you know, the fact that you haven't raised your voice with me. You are the most level-speaking guy I know. Well, because I know most of the time you're just trying to provoke me, and I don't want to get into that. <laughs> I think I need to take you out drinking to see to see more of Cole, basically. I would love, in, in all seriousness, pheromones aside, I think it would be amazing if the three of us got drinks at some point, because that's actually kind of crazy. Is, um, I mean, Scott and I have met, but we've never met you, Max, and I feel like I know you really well. Exactly. And, you know, and if you think I'm provocative on the phone, I wait until... Oh, yeah. You see, no, it actually doesn't work like that. It, it, that's really interesting, because when you're with somebody... You can actually, it's, that is really interesting. When you conflict with somebody, it's much easier to conflict. I'll give you a great example of this. But it's much easier to conflict not in person, on video. When you meet the person or even see them, it takes it out. And I'll tell you an example of this, is that I was interviewing um, some executive uh, about a project that we were running. And this person did not want to speak to me busy, uh, you're coming in here, you're running the organization, which meant they weren't going to be boss uh, anymore, um, etc. And the line kind of broke up. And I said, do you mind if we switch this to a Zoom call rather than a mobile call? And so we switched to Zoom and we could see each other, the entire tone of the conversation. Delighted to help you, rational answers. And, you know, in person, next level it would probably would have been even better so there's definitely something about the anonymity of not being seen then having a video then being in person there's a oh yeah you, you see this on like like social media like people say the most vile things you've ever read yeah. on social media but if you had to say it in someone's face you would never do it yeah there's a well i mean there's a pub uh there's the pub example you know the internet is being a large pub is that people, you, there are certain things you would never say to somebody in a pub that you would say even on the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People are jerks. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. How, how about we wrap it there? I mean, I feel like this has been one of our more stream of consciousness episodes, but I think it's going to be fun for the audience. So 
Uh, Max, thank you so much for joining us for round two on Directionally Correct. We'll see if there's a round three. Uh, I don't know. Scott, well, any, we any final words? That we plan to discuss about techniques for people, analytics people to raise their visibility in the organization, the six steps that you need to follow to get your function to be known. That you mean that? Max, you blew up the agenda. You can't put it back together. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we, we had things we wanted to talk to you about. It's too late now. I don't know. Scott, any... Oh, sorry. Scott, any final words? Oh, uh, Max, uh, we'll, we'll get in a pub, uh, you, me, and Cole, someday, and we'll, we'll say terrible things to each other. Cannot wait for that. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, um... Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, the People <laughs> Analytics podcast with Colin Scott. Thanks, Mac. Festivities. Have a good one. Stick around for part two, where we actually talk about people analytics. So, 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 the, whole, so the whole idea of, of people analytics is to create a set of workforce capabilities. And it doesn't matter what you're doing in people analytics, whether you're creating a dashboard, writing a program in R, um, whatever gives you your jollies in life. If you can't convince somebody that that leads to a workforce capability that your organization needs to deliver one of its business outcomes, you are not doing people analytics. You and are having are fun you technology. You're having fun. You know, the reason you went into people analytics is presumably because you enjoy R in your case, Scott, and, and, and my case as well. You know, and I enjoy multi-level modeling and complicated statistic techniques. And as a consultant, if somebody wants to pay me to write a meaningless multi-level model, it's been done. Some, an organization mm -hmm. came to me, I'll tell you, here's a great example. I said, Max, do, this is an example of why People analytics needs to be strategy-led and not data-led. Whenever I see this expression, data-led, I want to go nuts because it's not starting with the business. It's business-led or strategy-led. And some organization came to me once and said, Max, could you please trawl all of our learning and development data and show us that the huge investment of, of $20 million a year that we're making uh, has some positive outcome. And I said, well, that's not the way to do it. You're asking me to look for random correlations in your data, which may or may not exist. Um, and of course, I didn't find any. There's no way, you know, that you're going to, well, you know, 0.2, uh, you know, with a P of yeah. like point or something like that. And, and that was, and they paid me for it. You know, I, certainly they bought my time. But that wasn't people analytics. That was tinkering with numbers, and I had a lot of fun doing it, and I made lots of spectacular graphs. And they loved it. You know, he went and showed it to his boss and said, look at this boss. The guy said, wow, those are so colorful and so round. Well, mind you, you did have some... <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what would have been the... <laughs> how, how should it have gone down? How should it have gone down? It should have gone down by somebody saying, Max, we're really interested in finding out what are the drivers of uh, productivity? Or Max, what are the drivers of sales in the organization? And I would have looked at the drivers and gone through so talent management, leadership, and I would have gone through a whole bunch of workforce capabilities, efficiency, um, retention. Yeah. And I would have 
looked at each of those and I would have said, right, I would have put together a nice uh, regression type, more like a, yeah, might have been able to use regression, a nice regression model. And I would have said, right, what is the R squared of that model? Does it contribute to those? And if the answer is no, then, then we know that those things are not the right things for generating the business outcome of productivity that they're looking for. But today, as Elon Musk is very keen to tell us, we are not starting with the business outcome, like the productivity or the customer growth, et cetera. You've got people in technology in particular, it's not just people in analytics, IT, who love IT. That's why they went and studied IT at university and do this stuff. And then they come to work and they play with whatever data is available. Sometimes they'll generate some new data if they're not looking at what's in workday or success factors or whatever. Um, but mostly they play with data. They get very good effect sizes and very low Ps and stuff like that. Um, and they present it to somebody and somebody who also doesn't really know much about the business strategy looks at it and says, wow, what a significant result. And you say, well, can I connect that to a business outcome? I mean, it's very nice that you had a great week, a great month, a great project. But what's that done for us? And I think that's the issue with people analytics. Yeah, productivity for productivity's sake. I, I think like back to like the uh, work from home sort of uh, deal. You, you, you saw like an uptick in productivity when people left the office. And I, I wonder if it's like some of that is just them, you know, shoveling papers around, like to your point, like it's not really linked to anything. You create a dashboard. No one uses it, but you spent all this time and all your uh, 40 hours in your week is all gone. You were productive. And yeah, but you know, there's no single definition for productivity. True. That exists today. However, given any person's role, I will hypothesize, and I've, I mean, in my own organization, I, everybody had a productivity measure of some sort, uh, and they had to work to it, or they had to convince me that it was the wrong productivity measure for them and that we needed a new one. And so one of the first things I do with teams is to say, what can I measure you on, please, and make it the employee's problem. From do day do one. you mind if I go on a quick diatribe here? Because like, I, I have really strong feelings about this. Um, and so one of the things we wanted to talk to you about today, Max, was your People Analytics Camp presentation. I also had a presentation at that conference as well. Oh. And, and during the Q&A session um, with the, the moderators afterwards, they asked me a question about what we're talking about right now, which is like the productivity of people analytics teams and kind of how do we justify our existence. And I said, you know, when I led people analytics teams in the past, I always had a figure that we, like, we literally calculated to try to pay for ourselves 10 times over every year, meaning add up all the salaries, all the technology spend, all the resources, together as the denominator of how much our team costs and then show the ROI of all of our projects stacked on top of each other. And if you stack all those projects on top of each other, that it should pay for itself 10 times more than our team cost. And the yes. moderator asked me, is that do any other people analytics teams do this? And I said, not that I know of. <laughs> I've asked other people and I've extended the challenge to other people to do this. And hopefully this podcast can serve as an extension of that challenge. I even talked with somebody about it yesterday as an idea. They said, they were like, hey, we may be getting cut with layoffs. And Cole, what would you do? And I said, show the ROI of yourself 
try to pay for yourself 10 times over and see if that, you know, creates traction with your leaders. So that's my prescription because it's going right. to be really tough for the CEO of an organization to cut a business unit who's paying for itself 10 times over. And the thing, and here's the real fear. Here's the real fear, because this is where the, the diatribe will end, is that a lot of people analytics teams know that they're not doing work that will pay for itself. And that that's the zinger that I want to leave with. And I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Mac. No, no. You know, Cole, I, I mean, you have hit it spot on. You, you've mentioned one technique, which is your 10 times technique, but the principle is exactly right. And it really riles me that there are people who know we have this expression called taking the piss in the UK. Do you guys have that? You know, they know that they are, well, you can imagine, you know, that people know that they're taking the piss in people analytics and not doing it and that they're playing around with toys. The other way of, of doing it, and I think your, your, your quantitative approach is good. I, I've learned over the years that quantitative the world doesn't run on quantitative so much. It runs a lot on what people care about. My friend Sid Paymer, who's now going to have to listen to this podcast, when he did his MBA, I remember he, he taught me something called the daughter rule. And the daughter rule is that an investor comes to you with um, a, a billion dollars and says, I want to invest this in a retail outlet. What do you do? Do you create a department store? Or do you create a shopping center with independent shops? That's an interesting question. And the traditional answer is you do a discounted cash flow and you'd look at each model and you'd see which one gave you the highest ROI. The, the daughter rule says you go to the investor and you say, do you have a daughter who would like to have her own shop? If he does, then you build a shopping center with individual shops. And if he doesn't, then you build a department store. And that's how real business decisions in the world are made. It's family and those relationships, emotions, drive far more of what happens in this world, political affiliation, than a pure set of numbers. I mean, clearly, if the shopping center had an ROI you know, gap of 40% of lower than a department store, there might be some debate. But when there's not a whole lot in it. And so I would extend your approach, Cole, by doing what Oliver does so well. And that is developing a relationship with that executive and getting to know them as a human being. And then say, what would you like us to be doing in the people analytics team? Now, that doesn't require you to learn the strategy and do all the stuff that Craig said can't be done, which is like measure productivity. Then you are doing and addressing the issues that your executive thinks are important. And every month or whatever, you go back to them and say, here's how we're doing with the list of things that you told us were important. How is that person going to fire you when there's a round of firing? I mean, that'd have to be a real psychopath. So between the two, you know, your quant technique, my relationship, emotion fuel technique, um, there's got to be a way to keep people analytics happy. And that executive will keep the people analytics team focused on workforce capabilities through that technique as well. They won't let you be doing stuff or won't be encouraging you to do stuff that doesn't benefit them in any way. So how's the executive driven people analytics? Maybe there's the new word. Yeah. Yeah. And, I've actually uh, got an article coming out that I'm writing about a CEO's guide to people analytics. So I feel like that's a good tee up there. Like um, but I feel like the podcast just started. We, we finally started having the real directionally correct podcast and, and it's an hour and a half into the conversation. Well, it's a Christmas special. Sorry, festive season special. 
Yeah. Scott, what do you have to add, man? I have nothing. I have nothing. I got to bounce. Actually, I got a meeting here in a moment. Cool. All right. Well, enjoyed this, guys. Thanks again. Take care, y'all. Adios. Bye. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostic.